Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. This episode of Case Notes will explore the subject of neurology. We'll start by looking at the history of this specialty, then we'll talk to Dr. Will Whiteley, a neurologist working today. So let's start with the word neurology itself. Thomas Willis, Professor of Natural Philosophy at Oxford, coined the term in a book published in 1664. According to Willis, he published this book in order to, quote, unlock the secret places of man's mind. It was the first comprehensive work on the brain and nervous system in Europe. Sir Christopher Wren, the famed architect of St Paul's Cathedral, did most of the illustrations for Willis's book. Willis considered the brain, quote, the chief seat of the rational soul in a man and the chief mover in the animal machine. Through this work and his other research, Willis is credited as being the founder of neuroanatomy clinical neurology, and neuropathology. Willis's work was used as a textbook for the next 200 years. It might be useful to pause for a moment and consider what we mean by neurology, and even what we mean by nerves. Although the word neurology was in common use by the late 1600s, following its introduction by Willis, there was still a lot of variation in how it was applied. In the 1700s, a lot of physicians wrote about disorders of the nerves in ways very different from how we understand them today. Nerves were connected to sensibility, or sensitivity, of the individual. Medical terms like hysteria, the spleen, and the vapours were used to describe patients who were seen as suffering from nervous disorders or a nervous temperament. The 1700s was really a time of transition in medicine. A lot of older theories were being discarded, but what replaced them was a series of different ideas and explanations which were promoted, studied, then discarded, and then another theory came along to replace them. The theory of nerves and nervous disorders was one of the most popular of these transitory theories. Prominent and fashionable physicians wrote about this theory of the nerves. One of the most prominent was a Scottish physician called George Cheney, who wrote The English Malady in 1733. 
arguing that the English were particularly sensitive and delicate, so more susceptible to nerves than other nations. Anxiety, low spirits, sleeplessness and terrors abounded, according to this theory, and disordered nerves were the root of almost every ailment. In the 1800s, however, physicians and surgeons moved away from this more abstract theorising and went back to the body to study the physical nerves themselves. Charles Bell, Edinburgh-born and educated, was famous as an anatomist, physiologist and neurologist. In the early 1800s, Charles and his older brother John produced the most important anatomical work in Britain at the time, titled A Series of Engravings Explaining the Course of the Nerves. Both brothers were skilled in art and used their artistic talent in their anatomical work. The images in the book include illustrations engraved from Sir Charles's own drawings taken from his dissections for his anatomy lectures. The Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's library has copies of all Bell's major works, and among them is a very rare privately printed pamphlet titled Idea of a New Anatomy of the Brain. Here Bell presented his theory that different parts of the brain have specific functions, and the different functions of the nerves correspond with their relations to different parts of the brain. Today, Charles Bell is considered one of the greatest surgical scientists in history. Now I'm going to move on to a really foundational work in the development of neurology, James Parkinson's An Essay on the Shaking Palsy, published in 1817. James Parkinson was a physician and geologist practicing in London. Parkinson wrote this book, his most important work, after years of observing people with this condition on the streets around Hoxton Square in London, where he practiced and lived. He made careful notes on their condition and deterioration over the years and, although unable to offer a cure, decided to publish his observations to, quote, excite the attention of those who may point out the means of relieving a tedious and most distressing malady. Parkinson identified shaking palsy as a degenerative disease of the nervous system, which caused, quote, involuntary tremulous action with lessened muscular power. The signs and symptoms of the disease had been noted by physicians before Parkinson, but he was the first who recognised that they represented a single disease. His observations, although without the advantages of any post-mortem examinations, were so accurate that most of the essay remains relevant to the description of patients with Parkinson's disease today. The disease only became known as Parkinson's disease after the French neurologist Charcot wrote about it. Charcot had difficulty in obtaining a copy of the Parkinson's essay and he encouraged his students to translate it into French. Quote, it will provide you with the satisfaction and knowledge that one always gleans from a direct clinical description made by an honest and careful observer. Charcot improved on Parkinson's description. He and his students identified variants which they termed Parkinson's disease without tremor and Parkinson's disease with extended posture. It was Charcot who first suggested using the term Parkinson's disease to describe the complaint. By the end of the 1800s, Parkinson's disease as a term and as an idea was well established in medical literature. So welcome to this episode of our podcast. We have here with us Dr. William Whiteley. So I just wondered if you could start off by just introducing yourself, just saying a little bit about what you do and where you work. Hi, hi Daisy. So, so I'm a neurologist, but an academic neurologist. So that means that I trained in clinical neurology after training in general internal medicine. 
and then during my training decided that I was really interested in research. So I then uh, branched off to spend most of my time now uh, researching uh, the causes and consequences of uh, vascular diseases of the brain. And I work in, uh, in Edinburgh between NHS Lothian and uh, the University of Edinburgh and also have a position in the University of Oxford. Thank you very much. So I suppose if we just start with the absolute basics, which is what is neurology? Yeah, so I suppose if you think about medical specialities, most people are interested in an organ, but neurology is interested in the whole of the nervous system. So we're starting with illnesses that affect the brain, the spinal cord, the nerves or the muscles. And that ranges from some of the most common conditions uh, like stroke uh, to some of the rarest conditions where that only affect one or two people around the world. Thank you. So before we get into more to, to what you do, are there any sort of general misconceptions either by medical students or the general public about what, what you do and what it entails, do you think? Well, I think medical students often think that neurology is very difficult because they think they need to understand the entirety of neuroscience before being able to practice medicine. And there's no doubt, like all areas of medicine, it can be as intellectually challenging as you want. But uh, as soon as you've grasp the rudiments, which you can do as a medical student, it's just as easy to practice as a neurologist as it is to do a cardiologist or as a general practitioner or as a psychiatrist. So um, the thought that it's a very difficult thing to do is a general misconception. Thank you. So you obviously really enjoy the, the work that you do and find it really fascinating. But I'm just curious about how you got here. There, there must have been a point, of course, where all the different specialties were sort of laid out in front of you. What made you go down the path of neurology? What was the what was the sort of moment or, or the inspiration that sent you down this road? I think the, the, the thing that really inspired you know, as an undergraduate, I spent, did a degree in neurophysiology and always thought that the brain and neuroscience were for me. Um, and I thought I was going to be doing largely neuroscience as a researcher. But during my uh, so that's what drew me to the brain and the nervous system. But during my training, I met uh, Professor David Sackett, who was one of the founders of evidence-based medicine, and he really lighted the fire of interest in clinical epidemiology, which is uh, using numbers, really, to understand uh, the causes and consequences of disease. And that's the path I've followed ever since. Thank you. And having done a, a few of these interviews with different um, specialists, the, the idea of sort of the mentor or the inspiring figure just comes up again and again. And so I, I find it kind of sort of inspiring to think of you are now going to be doing that for the next generation. And it sort of continues doctors inspiring doctors. Yeah, that would be, I think um, David Sackett was an exceptional person. So he he was a um, he was a, a very high performing medical student and then joined the um, joined the army in, in Vietnam uh, in the United States and then his his research was you know, really fantastic in epidemiology and then he was uh, founded helped to found the medical school of McMaster in Canada developed ed evidence-based medicine there and brought together people who are now major names in uh, medical research and epidemiology around the world and then well, he came to my medical school and there inspired us all and uh, and then had an unusual retirement of uh, living on a, a trout lake in northern Ontario uh, and inviting groups of people to to getaways to come up with great new research ideas at the Kilgore Trout Research Centre. So he's a PK Dick fan. Um, 
he was an exceptional person. It wouldn't be great if I could be as amazing as he was. That does sound impressive and, and not necessarily your, your typical um, specialist, certainly. Um, and you've sort of touched on this already in the answer that you just gave, but um, how do you think neurology has changed over the course of your career? So what, what have been the, the sort of steps or, or developments that have moved it forward, would you say? Yeah, I suppose if you think in the old fashioned terms, a neurologist was primarily a, a diagnostician coming up with unusual uh, diagnoses for for for, uh, for symptoms that other doctors found puzzling. But I think more recently, a neurologist is you know, dealing with interesting new treatments. So for stroke, the range of treatments we've got for the, tre the treatment of acute stroke, uh, the way that we can think about uh, rehabilitating people, the way that we can think about reducing the risk of future stroke are all concentrated not on the diagnosis but on the treatment and prevention of conditions and so that's in stroke medicine but actually if you look across neurology and particularly in inflammatory conditions in neurology multiple sclerosis inflammatory neuropathies um, where once upon a time the only thing that a patient would be able to get would be uh, a steroid or perhaps some stronger immunosuppressants there's now a whole variety of um a whole variety of immunosuppressants that can be used to to make remarkable differences to people's lives so you know there the, the really is uh, in headache migraine where there are a number of relatively um, treatments with modest effect where people were uncertain about their mechanisms of action we're now moving towards a, a whole range of new treatments so i think neurology has changed from predominantly a diagnostic speciality although that's really very very important still because people need to make sense of these puzzling symptoms uh, to one of uh, treatment and understanding thank you so that <clears throat> your your answer sort of leads nicely onto what i was going to going to ask you next which is obviously we've talked particularly about the past so far and i'm interested to to get your thoughts on what the future of neurology looks like so so neurology in 10, 20, even longer years time, where do you think it's going to go? What are the big developments going to be? Uh, so I think um, you, know, you know you can never predict the future. And, you know, there's all sorts of people saying um, you shouldn't do so and it will always fail. But let's think about where things might go. So for, for rare conditions, we know that um, it, it seems that for some of these conditions that are predominantly genetic, interfering with the production of dna small interfering rna um it, 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 it is a potential way forward um designable vaccines incredible uh, we, we many of us have been in uh, have been vaccinated against covid with uh, a genetically designed protein which is injected into us and our body produces the protein uh, from that code but that may be possible for other new conditions and so i'm sure that's going to be a new and interesting area of practice i think the use of better use of data so we'll, we'll actually by using data collected in the nhs uh, and from other places will allow us to see the effect of disability over the course of people's lives and neurological disease and i think that will allow us to do two things first of all improve the quality of care that we give to people but also improve diagnoses and target care to the, to the right place and I think, um, who knows where else it could go. You know, working together with psychiatrists, I think is going to be particularly important. Um, and I think we'll see that uh, many of the tools that psychiatrists use to treat their conditions will be more important in people with 
uh, neurological disease and vice versa. So I think there may be some coming together of uh, people who look after all diseases of the brain, whether they have predominantly psychiatric manifestations or predominantly kind of neurological ones. So you've talked about the future. Obviously, the group of people that the future is particularly important to is the future generation of neurologists. So I'm curious to know from your perspective, is there any advice you could give to the future generation of neurologists? And also, what skills do you think are particularly important for them to develop? Well, I think uh, all students uh, should remember that uh, all neurologists, indeed all specialists, are really happy when people come to speak to them and say, I'm really interested in what you do. So if you have, you know, if you're wondering about being a neurologist or even any other specialist, don't don't hold back and go and speak to someone about what you're thinking about and get some experience of it. You, know, you, you will hopefully you'll be able to do that in some time in your um, in your in your medical school and go to an extra clinic or read some extra articles, recommendation of the person you've spoken to. But so I think the primary thing for us for a medical student is to remember that. Um, people are always happy to have an approach from a medical student, as long as it's sensible and polite. Um, everyone loves to know that people are interested in their job. Um, so what skills do we need to develop as a neurologist um, that's different from other areas of medicine? So unfortunately, you know, not like at the moment, we're not like, um, say, a cardiologist who's really good at wielding a, a long, thin tube or a gastroenterologist who's good at wielding a, a bendy telescope. We haven't got one of those things, but I think that a neurologist, perhaps more than other doctors, has to be particularly good at listening um, and explaining because uh, people will have gone through a long, often people who are referred to a neurologist um, in in general outpatients will have gone through a long uh, series of seeing lots of other doctors and you're going to have to make sense of that story and listen to it carefully. And then you're going to have to explain something that often will be very difficult to them. So you know, that's about really the skills of communication. I think those are very important for a neurologist. Thank you. So you've slightly undercut my next question, um, which I, I thought would be tricky with neurology. But essentially, I in my sort of dream world, I am given permission to set up a museum of medicine. And I would like to collect one physical object that represents each specialty. So what would the object for neurology be? What would be the tool or the item that people would connect with what you do, would you say? Yeah, so so neurologists are usually connected with this item, which is a tendon hammer. Um, although sometimes that's useful, it's actually not the most useful thing, because now, of course, we deal with MRI scanners and CT scanners and the rest. But um, I think the neuro- the thing that a neurologist always needs to have is actually their telephone to make use of uh, speaking to people to try and get hold of them and their relatives to get a really a good history. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing. There, the days of neurologists carrying around a little tool of what would have been called toffee hammers and, and, and their Bentley keys, um, I don't think many people do that anymore. Um, it, it's a very much a listening speciality and getting hold of people uh, and, and making use of the whole kind of panoply of medical technology. So there's never one thing that we need. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so the sort of elephant in the room, in a sense, is um, we are talking in November 2022 and we are optimistically 
uh, I'll say, coming to the end of the uh, COVID pandemic. But of course, that has impacted, you know, every doctor and every person for the last few years. So I'm curious to know, you know, in terms of your work, how has the pandemic impacted you? So as a clinician, um, the the good thing is that acute stroke services, as in the number of people we gave thrombolysis to, didn't change that much. But clearly it was very difficult for uh, speaking to families and uh, uh, looking after people on the ward and outpatients at the time um, were entirely were almost, became almost entirely by telephone uh, and I think that's made many people realize how much they can practice remotely when often it's convenient for people if you can assess someone uh, by telephone they don't need to leave their home and um, they don't need to travel if if they don't need tests so you know that that in a way was a good thing, but now we're back to meeting people face to face. It's much more enjoyable, at least for us practicing. Uh, for me as a, a researcher, it, it changed changed a lot because before that I was doing um, epidemiology of uh, dementia and stroke um, and thinking about randomized trials in those conditions. But when the uh, pandemic started, um, together with colleagues in the BHF Data Science Center, the British Heart Foundation Data Science Center, I started uh, to research into the causes and into the consequences of COVID on not just stroke, but other diseases of the blood vessels like heart attack and promembolus and uh, deep vein thrombosis. And so I spent a lot of time over the past two years looking at um, how COVID affects our risk of those diseases, how COVID vaccination might reduce them, um, and all the other methods we might use to, to, to try and find out more about COVID using uh, large-scale electronic health records. So that's where we can see what happens uh, to the entire population of England and Wales uh, or Scotland or uh, using um, using COVID that's recorded uh, when people see their GP or have their tests or vaccinated. And that's been a really rewarding bit of work for me and I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Daisy. That was fun. For our case study today, we're going to look at the case of a particular neurological disease, hysteria. Typically, historians have associated hysteria with the wealthy, the, to quote one historian, moneyed and fashionable crowd. But looking at the patient records of medical charities, particularly in the 1700s, hysteria was very common amongst the poorest of patients. However, many treating physicians did have misgivings as to the motives of some of those seeking treatment. It was not uncommon for doctors to be suspicious that the hysterical patients might be faking their disorder. Removed from its earlier association primarily with complications of the womb, by the late 1700s hysteria was commonly categorised rather as a nervous disorder. Symptoms of hysteria were seen as wide-ranging, from fits to emotional distress, dizziness, paralysis, constipation, difficulty breathing and depression. Some doctors believed that hysteria always involved fits. Others thought that you could diagnose hysteria based on other symptoms alone. This ambiguity in the diagnosis of a condition which presented very few clear-cut symptoms seems to be one of the main reasons why many physicians considered it to be particularly prone to falsification. 
In the diagnosis of this disorder, the charitable physician was especially reliant on the testimony of their patients, as they were unlikely to witness their symptoms firsthand. One Edinburgh dispensary physician noted on a number of occasions, such as in the case of 29-year-old Mary Rawlinson, who was admitted to the dispensary in the spring of 1782, that although the symptoms which were described, quote, might in some degree exist, that he yet had reason to presume that they were to no great degree, and that the patient's representation of the effect is rather exaggerated. The same physician went even further in another case, arguing that, quote, Hysteria symptoms are often feigned. Many females are not only capable of very exact imitation of fits, but even of inducing real fits when necessary. So physicians like this might not be disputing that hysteria was a proper disease, but there was a lot of dispute over individual cases and the likelihood of patients faking it. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage, and we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.